The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, good Tuesday morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. I'm here with Dr. Fred Gertz. Uh, people don't have any idea how thrilled I was to have Dr. Fred Gertz show up this morning because I wasn't 100% sure if you were going to make the, sh- the show today. And out of abundance of caution, uh, you know, Ryan's got a new baby coming in the next 10 or 12 days, I think. So he's trying to stay out from being out and about. And of course, my son David had his baby a few months ago, and they're still kind of in the extra careful zone. So I hadn't heard from Dr. Fred. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh. This could be just Paul talking right. for an hour, which my wife, I don't know if it was a compliment, said, well, you can certainly yeah, do that. Right. <laughs> so. so I guess we're essential personality. <laughs> yeah. I guess we have less to lose, Fred. Um, you can call in with your questions, 217-356-9397, and we hope you do call today. We're happy to take those calls, especially with all the new potential tax law changes, uh, but we're always happy to hear from people. Or you could text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line, 351-5357. Or you can email your question to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own due diligence. Well, Fred, before we get started, I, I was pleased to hear that Rudy Wealth Management was selected as in the People's Choice Award as the number one firm again. I'm not sure what that means. There's a few people that maybe enjoy us or like us. Uh, maybe the show helps. Maybe, maybe Dr. Fred Gertz <laughs> even helps that. But uh, I do want to thank people <clears throat> for taking the time to vote for us. It's the third time now we've won that award as the number one investment firm in the People's Choice Award. I don't want to make too much about it. I mean, right. obviously I'm bringing it up and it's important, but it's more of just I want to acknowledge that people went out of their way to do that. And and they'll hear my new ad uh, about it. And I'm and we have to be really careful to say, and I think it's <clears throat> the only honest way to think about it too, is I don't think people should hire a firm, you know, as their investment person or their retirement planner based on an award like that. So maybe for the reasons they were voted for that, but not just for merely having that award. So I want to be careful yeah. with that. Yeah, choosing an advisor is a, a complicated thing because you obviously need advice, but then you need good advice. So deciding whether it's good advice. So everyone you talk to is going to say they have good advice. So the, the question is, how do you how do you make the decision? Yeah, and how do you measure that? And you can't prove anything about the future, as I tell prospective clients. Um, I think that is one of the bigger bigger challenges and I'm always humbled how people make that choice um, because it is a high stakes game I think for many people that uh, if they're going to have a retirement planner I'm just thinking more along the lines of retirement heading into two or three decades uh, and you know sometimes we're prepared to handle it on our own but then there comes times where we decide well maybe there'll come a point where I don't Uh, but it's high stakes and there's really no as I tell people, there's no pill I can give anybody that say, you know, or try this and then try right. this one on. And <clears throat> there should be retirement fitting rooms <laughs> where you get to go actually try it on. Uh, but unfortunately, that's difficult. So well, and uh, the, I guess the one thing is if it if it seems too good to be true, it probably isn't. So yeah, I was I was watching uh, one of the cable news shows last night um, and. There's been this ad for a real estate company. I'm not going to mention it, but they talk about, you know, a 10% guaranteed. Well, then you start reading the fine print. And every time I see that, I think, you know, as a registered investment advisor with the SEC, we have to be really careful uh, about forward-looking statements, about even when you're talking about historical events or or historical returns, to basically always say, as we do at the beginning of the show, you know, the, you know, the past performance mm. uh, in, in the way I would think about it is that it's probably some decent guideline, but it's really no indication necessarily of future results. But yet these people can get on and make outrageous claims. Uh, and it's not just that one. You know, e- even the gold thing bugs me a little bit, how, mm-hmm. how the gold is promoted. But I started looking into this real estate 
thing. And of course, already the SEC's on one of the people for some fraud charges, and right. and there's not a real good history there. Um, but the but a lot of the commentary when you read people's views of it, they say, you know <laughs> what you just said. If it sounds too good to be true, yeah. it, it generally is. And, and, and any time these real estate, you know, they they tend to involve heavy amount of leverage. Uh, it's kind of like, hey, if everything works out all right, <clears throat> it probably does provide a pretty good return. But there's so much leverage and so many upfront costs that the general partners earn and the fees they earn. It's it's really not the same as saying, hey, you get a guaranteed 10% return. Yeah. And and they almost impli- imply that it's paid monthly, like a 10% per month. No, it's the 10%. And, and really what they're saying is, well, we don't get any money until you get, you get that 10% for the year. But that's not even necessarily true because there's – heavy fees on the front end of these limited partnerships right. where they're actually mm-hmm. getting quite a big penny out first yeah. well, uh, before yeah. others. There is something you, you can guarantee more or less, that is market returns. Uh, you can't guarantee what the market returns will be, but you can tell people at least they're going to participate in the uh, in the market, and in the long term of the market usually is a pretty good uh, um, way to be. Uh, yeah, historically it's certainly been – certainly been uh, Given enough faith, patience, and discipline, and time horizon measured in years or even decades, uh, it's usually worked out pretty well, and you can get a pretty good concept for what that's been. The way I explain it to people, Fred, is sometimes I'll say, well, there's this thing we call expected return, and sometimes that's just based off the long-term average return for, say, large company stocks, somewhere around 10% a year. So that would be, a lot of people would say, uh, the expected return of the broad U.S. market might be 10, 11, or 12 percent a year. But what investors actually get, I try to explain this to people, is we always, we never get the expected return. We get what's called the unexpected return. Yeah. It's going to probably be any return but that, sometimes more favorable and sometimes less. It's, I like to always think of these things as a distribution of outcomes. When you're thinking economics, uh, I don't know how much forecasting you do these days or you know even if you just kind of just for a hobby or do it on your own or for others um, when you're doing thinking about what could what the future might look like from an economic perspective do you think in terms of distributions or do you usually have one or two kind of likely Mm. scenarios and well i think distributions in the short run and probably more the longer out the narrow the distribution would be as we talked about the long-term returns are probably more more not certain, but more uh, predictable than the short short term ones. Cl- clearly, and again, my my forecasting doesn't really impact my uh, investment behavior. So, and is that mainly because we talk so much that even if you could for- forecast the economy in the near term, which I think is very difficult, um, it might not correlate to how particular investments are going to what their returns are going to be. Sure, I mean if <clears throat> we, I mean we're maybe being a dead horse here, but. Uh, if someone had told you in January of 2000 that we're going to have a crisis that will shut down the economy for a year, a uh, huge number of people are going to be out of out of work, and uh, it may not be resolved for a long time, you probably would say, well, that's the time to get out of the market and wait. But again, it was exactly the wrong time. So again, you never know. Even if you knew the economy, you wouldn't know the uh, the markets. We're going to go to Zoe. Hope I don't mess this up. I'm a little rusty. It's been a few weeks since our last show. Zoe, are you there? You. Hi. Yes. Um, I just had a question about S&P 500. Okay. I'm investing a major part of what I have, okay. which isn't very much well, in it. Well. But um, and I'm I'm retired. Okay. I don't I don't have a pension or anything. Um, is Social Security a little bit. Um, but she, a lot of times things happen in October, and I know we don't time the market, but I'm wondering if I should wait until, like, maybe after October 15th or something to do it. Or should I, and should I do it in, in a couple of different times, or should I just do it all at once? I think you make timing decisions. You're either a timer or you're not. And so many things are what I call closet timing. Uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to be overly blunt i'm just saying you're if, if you thought of things from an odds standpoint and just and just yesterday i and i showed fred and i'm going to show him afterwards i created a calculator about to tell me from using all the historical data we have on a monthly basis you know what are the odds that we fall 10 percent over the next two months or three months and 
um, the odds of so first of all it, to get out or to make any changes you're probably at at least a three to one odds against you being correct so I mean the odds just for instance if I thought over the next year the stock a year from now the stock market would be lower than it is today so therefore I'm this is not you I'm just I'm, just no, I'm changing it I'd say well okay considering that three out of four years the stock market has a positive nominal return you have a three to one you know rate odds against you being correct right um, think about the go are you familiar with the saying uh, uh, what is the may go away uh, sell in May oh, and yeah, go away right, okay yeah. and then come in back after mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a labor day I've or later that. in the fall yeah. Well, look at this year. I mean, you probably walked away if people that did that. Some people actually do that, but probably left 8 or 9% return on the table. Right. And that may be a permanent loss of opportunity. We, I don't think mm-hmm. we think about if we get out and the market goes up 5 or 10% and it never goes does what we thought it would, that's money we're never getting back. That's, that's a right. loss to me, too. So I would probably, Fred, just reassess Zoe whatever your asset allocation is to the great companies of America and the world, and we're talking about right. the great companies of America when we talk mm-hmm. about the S&P 500. First of all, rebalancing is the first thing. So we should always, once we've identified what our allocation to those companies are going to be, if it's 50 or 60 or 70%, probably a good time right now to be thinking about because it's, chances are it's out of balance. But as far as September's and October's having this history for being having poor returns, it's kind of sort of true, but I don't think you can make any decisions based on what's kind of sort of true. So I, Fred, I I vote for don't tinker. Make sure your allocation is set to your expectations. Right. I think that's right in general. But again, if if you believe this or superstitious, uh, you know, doing it a little bit at a time is no no big deal in a month one way or another. I mean, if I, if I believe uh, investing on Thursdays uh, is a bad deal, I invest on Fridays instead. It's not, it's not going to hurt me <laughs> very <not> much. <laughs> no, but you lay out a month and, and yeah, the way no, right. return. I know what you're saying. Right. You're, you're, yeah, you can almost be arbitrary about yeah. it. But as long as you don't say, I'm going to sell now and right. get back in 10 years from now, well, that clearly would be a mistake. Well, yeah, I wasn't. Yeah. yeah, I was just wondering about, you know, waiting a month. I, there's also yeah. the, the psychological, you know, if, if you're uh, fortunate enough to inherit $10 million, that, that might mm. be different from uh, investing $10,000, too. You might not want to uh, – you might be psychologically not willing to bet it all at one time. So, again, I think the, the idea of if your your goal is maximizing your expected returns, do it now. If you are worried about your uh, regret, <laughs> maybe there's some ways to uh, reduce that. And Zoe, sometimes I created a, another program that kind of prints out a letter for me automatically. Mm-hmm. And so it's not unusual for a client to say, hey, you know, boy, the market's really gone up a lot and I'm reading a lot of things, you know, and so-and-so, the head of this giant hedge fund or whatever, said that a correction is imminent. Uh, what do you think we should do? I'll go back to the month they were born, and if I just put in the month and the year that they were born, um, it's it makes it kind of makes you go, oh, never mind. <laughs> now let's take me for example. I was if if I go back, I was born in November of 1959, and over that period of time, there have been probably 14 bear markets of 20% declines or more, of which three of them were the three largest outside of the 1929. So three of them saw a 50% or more decline. So it was a pretty tough 60, almost two years. And yet, if I look at the stock market index, the S&P 500, the exact one you you mentioned, Mm -hmm. it's up about 74 times higher than it was the month I was born. Mm -hmm. Dividends are about 32 times higher than they began. Mm -hmm. And the cost of living is up about eight or nine times. And yeah, because even when it goes down, you get those dividend, that little bit of dividends, and yeah. it's better than probably you get in a in a um, you know in a money market fund or a you know what I mean. Yeah, so <laughs> anything's better than that. Well, and that's making it tough on uh, Fred. It, that's really this is an unusual. It's not unprecedented. We can go way back in time, and, and we had some pretty low interest rates and low real interest rates. But in modern times. We're at epic low interest rates, especially on what people are used to, savings deposits, CDs, and things like that. Right. That's putting immense pressure on people 
to sort of reassess, well, wait a minute, if I'm going to live in retirement for two to three decades and my cost of living is likely to double, if not triple, how am I going to make it suddenly if half my money is in CDs that are earning a quarter of a percent or a half percent? It's a, it's a, and it's pushing a lot of people, uh, Zoe and Fred, to saying, well, I was normally 50% stocks, 50% bonds, is to making decisions. Now they're going much higher in the stock market, stretching for additional returns just to make it. And it, and it becomes a different deal. And I think people need to be really comfortable with that different set of instructions. Well, I can prove that you're, what you say is true because I invested another little bit of money in an IRA, and it was really a little bit of money. But I did it at the worst possible time. Right after I did it, the markets started going down, and they went down for years. But then they went back up, and I still did better than I did in anything else. Yeah, I mean, that's... So, you, so that kind of proves what you say. If you have that type of time horizon, most people, if they're somewhere near the front end of their retirement and is still have a couple of decades plus uh, right. to look at it. In fact, if we went back to the very top of 2007, mm -hmm. December of 2007 or so, somewhere around there, wherever the top was before the great financial crisis, and you held on to today, you have very handsome gains. You've had very handsome uh, dividend increases. You're substantially better off than you were had you invested this big lump sum at just the day before the announcement of the great financial crisis. So we probably answered in a way that you expected. Yeah. Uh, it's probably boring for people to hear that because, well, they, of course, that's what Paul and Fred always say. You can't time the markets. And timing the markets turns out to be a pretty risky venture. So you would just put it all in one lump sum. You wouldn't just put, do it like in three or... So three. You're, if you're talking about if I come into new money and somehow right. it needs to be invested... It's not really new, but it's... Sort of. <laughs> in your in mind, it is. CD. Okay. It was okay. Good. That's, nothing. You know what? That's a perfect example because that's happening every day. People's CDs are maturing and they're trying to make this decision. And they've made perhaps the decision to say, you know what? It's, it's going to find some or all of it's going to find its way into the great companies of America and the world. Right. I don't have. So the, the best answer is, and that's not the answer, the best answer is today before 3 o'clock because the market tends has this propensity to want to go up over the next year, okay? The okay. real answer is we're switching from one asset class that is very reliable and very predictable to one that is very unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And I think a way, and I don't have any issues, in fact, I encourage it for m many times, is to just say, I'm going to take the next 12 months for this to get into that S&P 500 fund, and I'm going to do the same amount on the first day of each month. I'm going to divide it by 12 or 10, however you want to do it. Okay. And then if what, what we're afraid of happens, so now suddenly the market has a correction, we're down 10, 11, 12, 14%, right. speed it up a couple of months. But here's yeah. the deal. I can shake hands with everybody I've met that's able to do that at the same time mm -hmm. because... As soon as we're down 10 or 12% over the next three or four weeks, now we start looking for, you know, this cognitive and recency bias. Now we want to start paying a little more attention to that person on TV that said, just said we haven't seen anything yet, and this is going to be a full-blown bear market. That's the trap, but that's why I think dollar cost averaging in over six to 12 months, speeding it up every time you're feeling uncomfortable, that's just a signal. Add one more month in ahead of time. Okay. Okay. That's really served me well and my clients well. Thank well. you. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Zoe. Bye. I think that's really common right now for right. it. It's like money, all this money rolling out at CDs, and they're offering yeah. you anywhere from zero to maybe a half percent. I may be wrong on that. I'm, yeah. I'm f if any bankers can call in and say, Paul, you're way off. That you can get a right. CD for 3%. Uh, I just don't think so. That's not what I'm seeing. But you're also hearing the, the uh, markets overvalued thing as well so you never there's never a, a thing where everything points in the same direction right so it's the pandemic then the election now the market's too high yeah uh and and all those things may may be true the market maybe the market is overvalued i don't know it's probably undervalued but mm -hmm. less undervalued than i would have thought a year ago uh but it's this idea that at least over the last 50 years on an average basis we fall somewhere around 14 percent sometime within a year and even if it's a ends up being a wonderful year, for most on average, it's yeah. it's pretty reasonable. That's why 
it frustrates me to see, you know, the head of ABC giant financial company says a correction is due. And you're thinking, okay, it's been yeah. way overdue for a long time. And to, 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 to forecast something that happens pr- approximately once a year is hardly heroic right. to me. Uh, but I think that does confuse people, and it, and it concerns people. And boy, what a trap if you're yeah. if you're watching the financial media. Yeah, well, individuals I think tend to be overly optimistic and swing back and forth. But we just had a study at the uh, pension fund I'm involved with, and going back like twenty or thirty years about our expected rate of return versus our actual. Okay, and, and we actually did better. Yeah, and and every time, uh, and we've actually lowered a little bit. But every time the consultant saying, well. You can't expect to do what you did in the past. You have to lower your expectations. We have to a certain extent, but we've always met our expectations at the same time. I, there is that's very common, and I, I don't think it makes any theoretical sense. I mean, nobody look maybe when stock prices are dear, yes, over the next ten years, maybe maybe expected returns should be. But the whole point of expected returns it's really based on that long term average return, and I've even argued when I used to be on Twitter arguing with people I don't know, and I don't know why anybody would do that. I haven't done it for a couple of years. But we have a, a real thought leader in our industry, and I said, but that doesn't make any sense to me because if you're doing simulations, yeah. those bad returns that you might be worried about are already in there, even with the same expected returns. And another way I've put it, Fred, is why would I expect returns to be lower for just the broad stock market, just 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 in all fairness, unless somebody can tell me because risk has been reduced. So I, I haven't seen anything that suggests to me that the market is any more predictable than it is, is, that it's more predictable than it has in the past. So therefore, it would suggest to me that the comp, what people expect to be compensated probably hasn't changed either. But then it always gets back to we never get the expected return. We get right. the unexpected return. Right. So taxes I want to get to in a minute because I I think that's sort of a big deal. Uh, you're probably going to tell me from what you've read it's not horrible. Uh, but inflation, now it came out today, and I didn't see what the numbers were, 4 or 5% year over year, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, 0.03 for the month. And so I think there was a lot of relief that, oh, it wasn't near as bad as people feared. Um, it, it, I, I, as of late, I've been kind of, Maybe I'm biased because I talk to my friends that are in manufacturing, et cetera, and one of them sent me an email today that says, oh, yeah, I used to buy my pallets for $6.22 or something like that, and now the last ones were $19. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that just impacts our brain, and it shouldn't. But I have, as of late, been thinking that maybe inflation's not as transitory as we've yeah. been, that it's been promised to be. No, it may, may well be, depending, depending on how people... Uh, decide to go back to work. Again, <clears throat> there's a, a situation, you know, obviously, where there are lots of jobs available but they're not, not being filled. And again, you notice things just going to the grocery store now that a lot of the uh, the shelves are not uh, yeah. fully stocked. And again, I don't think that's a long-term thing. I think that, that, that is a transitory uh, kind of change. I think that part, yes. Don't. I mean, and I got to autom- believe that those things get worked out. And automobiles eventually, too. I don't think that two years from now you're going to have to pay over sticker price probably for a for an automobile. So. And, and aren't high prices kind of the cure for high prices? Sure. You know, so, okay, prices are probably bid up, but then that's some one way or another going to encourage more manufacturing yeah. and more supply. It's, mm. That's the way I've always viewed it. So taxes, uh, when read in the Wall Street Journal, it says tax proposals aren't final, but ways and means have started debating. There's a couple of them that are sort of interesting to me. They definitely want to do away with the... Uh, uh, backdoor Roth. Yeah. Okay, and the backdoor Roth is if you didn't qualify to do a Roth contribution for your IRA, you could do a if because your income's too high, your taxable income's too high, you could put six or seven thousand dollars in a uh, non-deductible IRA, and then shortly thereafter convert it to a Roth IRA. Right. Okay, there's some certain little trips and traps, so you have to be careful. And then there's been what's called the mega Roth. Uh, they like to put mega in front of these things. Uh, through 401k plans, if your plan allows it, you can put much more money, uh, 50-some-odd thousand dollars, in a after-tax 401k if they allow for it and then convert that and do these pretty yeah. massive. 
and they're clearly going to get rid of those, or they clearly want it. That's a target. Yeah. Um, the other thing is um, they're basically saying you can't do any Roth conversions. Before, when I first read it, I thought, wow, they're just going to eliminate Roth conversions completely, mm. but it's actually postponed 10 years. Mm. I suspect that means they still want these conversions. They want, yeah. they, they're, they're counting on some of that tax returns. But the top bracket gonna, looks like it, that's going to rise to 39.6%. That's what it was before, right? Right. Before the uh, tax. There used to be a, a slightly lower rate in a surcharge that made it close to 40%. But then there are all kinds of extra things now. The higher income people are being taxed for uh, Medicare, um, you know, healthcare kind of things. And so it's, it's a more complicated it is. arrangement. Just look at that marginal tax bracket. But the difference is, so now it won't, won't kick in until you have 400000 if you're single of taxable yeah. income. And for married couples, 450000 But the deal is it used to be, back when it was 39.6, plus for single and 628. So they really brought down where right. it's triggered as well. Uh, any material impact from an economic state, you know, well, standpoint? Just again, that one in isolation? Yeah, I think every little bit has an impact. But I don't think it's a tipping point or something of that sort. So again, uh, it's still the only game. And again, uh, people and firms are fairly ingenious about things too, that uh, it's kind of a cat and mouse game. The government does one thing and people figure out ways to try to mitigate some of the impact. So I think it's going to have an impact, but not a, a major one. The thing about the Roth, I guess I'm not, uh, in, the fa- in the past, uh, as you s- suggested, the Roth has been a way of getting money sooner rather than later for the government. So if they get rid of it, it means that they'll have to wait longer to get their taxes. I'm not sure about. Uh, well, that's why I think they put in the ten year. Yeah. The the ten year window. So in, until December 31st of uh, 2031, I think that yeah. takes advantage. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the big thing I think though, is, I mean, not, not that this is small, but the bigger thing probably is the treatment of capital gains, and there's still a lot uh, about that that hasn't been determined. They're talking about lower, uh, some of the uh, less um, uh, liberal Democrats are talking about a somewhat lower corporate rate and maybe a somewhat lower uh, capital gains rate, so that may be a... From what I can tell, it looks like from the corporate, it looks like the top tax rate, at least in the House bill, rising to 26.5 from 21%, so below the 28 or yeah. some of the higher ones. Uh, this goes on to say add state and local corporate levies, and the 31% average rate will vault the U.S. <clears throat> back to the highest in the developed world right. from a corporate tax rate. I don't think that's where we necessarily want to be. No, it, I'm not it, sure that's a, a, bra- a badge of honor. Well, I, I think it's... There's also the question about the uh, uh, Secretary of Treasury Yellen is talking about trying to get everyone to agree to uh, all the developed countries to have a more or less uniform uh, corporate rate, which would make it a lot easier to deal with some of these issues. But having people say that it's a good idea is not the same as actually doing it. So I suspect they're going to be a, a, there's going to be a lot of difficulty get, getting that kind of agreement. So I think that's um, a legitimate kind of, uh, of issue. So the, the capital gains, though, I think uh, the, the real thing, which is behind the scenes, is whether they would uh, deal with the stepped-up basis. So you could have a, uh, pretty much the same rate, but if you start taxing gains at death, that would be a really big change. It and, appears and that that's been taken out. Yeah. It's, it's what it appears. We've all been saved by the, by the farmers. Yeah, <laughs> they, they said that's what's ironic is that the Democrats' plan is actually less, uh, I don't want to say heinous, but less taxing than yeah. the Biden's plan. It uh, looks like they're going after high earners five, if you make more than $5 million, so which is interesting. Yeah. I assume that's taxable income. There will also be a three percentage point income tax surcharge, uh, which take the top racks to something like 40 rate bracket to 46.4 add california new york taxes and the government will take about 60 percent yeah there seems to be some (laughs) disincentive baked in there but i don't i don't want to be political about this small businesses now that i didn't see this one coming says the house proposal will hit small business that pay taxes through individual code essentially especially hard so rudy wealth management is a sub s corporation as many small companies are right. basically just everything passes through to the shareholders tax returns personal tax returns they'll pay the higher individual rates including the new th- uh, a new 3.8 percent surtax on small business income so for so people like me i know that i have another maybe 
close to six percent income tax right. uh, coming between the higher top marginal tax but it, brackets. It's, it's paid, that. It depends how you. It's not paid at the uh, business level, isn't it? Paid at the individual. Right. So, it, it, depending how widely you spread the. Uh, I understand <laughs> for, for sure. Uh, and they're also eliminating uh, the 20% deduction on qualified business income. Yeah. So that impacts a lot of small businesses. Yeah. That was really a bizarre uh, kind of thing to begin with. I mean, it, it, I think it should, should never have been there. Uh, and again, it was very arbitrary. I think you didn't qualify. Your firm didn't qualify to, to do for the No. Because, you know, some, like, some firms do and some firms don't right. based on really totally weird. arbitrary it, kinds of things. So. <laughs> it's kind of like you better have friendly lobbyists. The death tax exemption would also be cut in half to five and a half million. So, yeah. you know, it's double that right now. Uh, but that, that's, let's that's, see what happens there. That's for per, so it'd be like 10 or 11 million dollars yeah. for, for a couple. Yeah. Uh, and you no longer, I mean, people may not be aware of this, but it no longer makes a big difference about, it used to be there were all kinds of arrangements where if one spouse died, you had to do certain things. But now the two are, are pretty much combined together. Got an email that says, why doesn't the government tax all these people getting their free, in quotes, money as income, they should. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of people probably wouldn't disagree with that. Right. Uh, yeah. Everybody that got the check would disagree with that. Yeah. Well, that's really a big thing, though. I think the we're at a kind of dividing line right now. Uh, you could argue that what we've done so far has been largely to deal with the COVID crisis, and it's gotten through that. Now, the next step seems to be more institutionalizing it uh, into the future with uh, child payments and things of that sort, which – don't go just to poor people. Go to a fairly substantial percentage of the population. I think that's a a big step, and probably a step you can't back off on once you once right. you take it. And I just want to be sure that I'm clear on that backdoor Roth IRAs curbs for high earners. I might have said you can't do them at all. It says eliminates the Roth convergence for both IRAs and employer sponsored plans for single taxpayers with income over four hundred, and married taxpayers with income over four fifty. Big marriage penalty there. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's, that's a huge marriage penalty. There's also a question, but that's about whether the conversion counts as part of the base or not. I mean, if it's four hundred thousand plus uh, whatever you convert, that's one thing. If it's uh, including the, the, the amount you convert, then yeah, it becomes you, know, you, might, you might have anybody could. Well, a lot of more people could trip into it if yeah. it's included. Oddly enough, this proposal would not be effective for ten years. <laughs> so that's the one that for ten well, and years. The ten years they have to deal with. Uh, uh, kind of uh, rules about balance, not balancing the budget, but accounting for the deficit over 10 years. And if it's beyond 10 years, then it doesn't count against them. So and, they, they, and they would do the elimination of the mega backdoor Roth yeah. right away. So that's, I thought that was interesting. Well, what, what is the mega defined as? Yeah. So the mega is where you can, uh, the, the top limit for a 401k is 50 some odd thousand that a person can in total put away. So what people would do is put their normal 19000 If they're above 50, they could put in more. And then there's this extra money up to that level that you could put in the tr uh, traditional non-deductible IRA and then convert it to yep. a Roth. And that's why they came up with the mega Roth. But they're basically saying uh, they're just, you know, prohib prohibits all after-tax IRA contributions from converted to Roth IRAs yep. uh, right away. So you can do conversions but not backdoor Roth conversions. So you can do conversions based on income, but that doesn't take in effect the income levels for 10 years. But the backdoor Roth IRAs look like they want to do away with those. So that's pretty good, uh, pretty good little tax proposal. Right. Um, the other, I mean, this is a big difference. I, I think the idea of, of uh, taxing capital gains at the uh, normal rate is probably not, uh, not a, a go anymore, is it? I, th I, I, you know, I in this whole article in the Wall Street Journal, I want to make sure I didn't miss it. I didn't see anything about capital gains in that, and yeah. I know that I, I know I read some other articles that I think said they're going to take the top bracket up to twenty five percent. No, but That's the original kind of the proposal was to treat so, it like ordinary income. Treat it like ordinary income, and then on death, that you don't get the step up in bases, and it looks like that's. Looks like that's been eliminated. Well, Nine, Ninety-six that, billion they expect to raise from higher taxes on tobacco and nicotine. Yeah, but it shows that the, uh, uh, regardless of how liberal they, uh, the Congress appears, they're still receptive to uh, the normal kinds of uh, lobbying efforts. For oh. example, uh, the idea of getting the the, the the reform several years ago got rid of uh, state and local tax uh, deductions of about ten thousand dollars, and that actually is making it much more. Um, um, equal in terms of the impact, but now the rich states like New York and California want to get rid of that, which would help 
they're high income people, so they're getting rid of a, a, a proposal that actually made the tax more progressive to make it less progressive. Yeah, I think that's yet to be worked out. That's yeah. kind of mysteriously not in there yet. Not that part. The salt deduction hasn't been yeah. taken place. My guess is there's they'll probably you know that salt deduction won't be eliminated, right. or, or you'll be able to have right. higher uh, deductions for your property taxes and local sales tax and things like that. Um, you know, I read an interesting article, Fred, and you know, I guess historically I've always been opposed to just buying 15 or 20 individual stocks. I don't think that gave you enough diversification. I think it, it, you, you take on some additional risk that you really don't need to take. Um, and this article written by Larry Swedrow of the latest research says, most stocks are duds. Yes, you read that right. And he talked about a couple of studies that basically show that the majority of stocks over long periods of time underperform treasury bills and that most of the return, and this part we knew, most of the return, let's say from the S&P 500 index in any given year might be five or 10 or 15 stocks that basically just blew the lights out. It right. carries the whole index with them. Uh, and so it's just more of a call for saying, you know, it's too risky to try to pick stocks because your chances of missing one of these really high earning stocks if you're a stock picker are just high and then you're likely to underperform what you could have earned just simply by having in the index. But the, but. I got to tell you, it was interesting for me to read that, at least in this research, that the majority of stocks right. underperformed T-bills over long periods of time. But what did he suggest to do, though? What was the... Buy the index fund and anyway. just capture all the returns because yeah. you're, you know, the, the, it's kind of at your peril, right. I, I'm paraphrasing, well, I'm, to try to pick the right ones yeah. and just try to pick those winners. Now, I told this story I've, probably several times, but I went to a, a money manager uh, in New York City and... Uh, she was talking about uh, the options she had, and she said we have uh, this uh, really good uh, portfolio of a hundred uh, firms that we think are going to do the best in the next several years. And then of that, we have an even better group that uh, the top ten of that hundred. And so you can pick a concentrated uh, group of the, of the firms we think are going to do really well. Well, it turned out that the 100 firms did terribly, and the, and the top 10 of the 100 did even worse than that. So if you make the wrong pick, obviously you're, <laughs> you're in trouble. So, you know, again, even though it's true, it, no one's telling you which the good ones and the bad ones are. And it's just that risk of, you know, maybe one out of six chance you're, you're going to miss one of them. Yeah. Uh, and so, therefore, it's a pretty risky game to try to yeah. pick the winners and – when you look at the reports on active managers, and this is you know an old song that we're singing, but consistently shows that the vast majority of these people that are paid to pick the right ones, to pick just the winners, actually end up mainly due to extra costs associated with right. that type of research, tend to be a drag and detract from returns. They really don't add to returns. Right. So I thought that was you know kind of interesting and in, in reinforcing. Um, but overall, if the tax numbers that we're seeing, uh, spending numbers, doesn't sound like Joe Manchin is really on board with all this spending. No, I think so. Trillion, and there's a chance that all this could fall apart, I take right. it. Right. I think that uh, uh, some of the Democrats are, are realizing that uh, uh, it, it may be a tough go. If, if you look at the major changes in, in the uh, – uh, U.S. Congress. One was in, uh, let's see, 19, uh, 1994 after uh, Clinton was elected the first term, and then uh, there was a huge change over then, and a huge change over after the, the second uh, two years after Obama was first elected. So I think uh, the, the liberals aren't really worried about this very much because their districts are, are fine. It's the people like Manchin who are in, in uh, more conservative districts where they actually have to worry about getting reelected. So some of those people may be a little hesitant about going uh, very far in this direction. Well, it's going to be interesting to see. Like I said, I you know personally, I if it passes, I can I can see the impact on me. But I don't think anybody's crying for me, and I don't think they should. I, I guess I always looked at it like, well, I may not enjoy the concept of higher income taxes. I, I consider it a lucky tax compared yeah. to the alternative, right. but only to a point. There comes a point where I think it can be a real drag on growth sure. in the economy. And it just seems interesting that just a few years ago, when we had all the, and I'm not arguing for or against it, but we seemed like the economy and everything was firing on all cinders when we had reduced regulation and reduced taxes and corporate income taxes. 
Uh, we seem to be, you know, independent from a, uh, from an energy standpoint. Uh, the minorities were having their biggest gains in the share of GDP and incomes, you know, as far as increases year over year. And it's just, it's strange to look at that success. And I know there's lots of things about that people don't like, but just from a pure economic standpoint, it seems like we're flipping a switch and just saying we're going to undo a lot of that. Well, we are, but the, uh, to to some extent, if you're going to follow the expending the spending patterns that the federal government is undertaking now, you do have to think about more taxes. Uh, that's not, so again, uh, are more taxes good or bad? Well, if you're spending a lot of money and not paying for it, you probably need taxes. So, so higher taxes may be inevitable. I think they're the, the the problem may be also that they're going the wrong direction. Uh, pe- people sometimes talk about. Uh, wouldn't it be great if the United States were like Sweden or Denmark or someplace like that, where they have uh, really high taxes and uh, all kinds of public services? But the difference is that uh, Denmark and Sweden don't try to uh, take all the tax money from the top 5% or 10%. People pay for uh, the public services all the way down the line. So even if you're a middle-income or lower-middle-income person, you're paying a pretty high tax rate in uh, in the Scandinavian countries. In the United States, though, uh, we seem to be going in the direction of saying everything should be paid for by just uh, a relatively uh, small group and everything else, everyone else should be the beneficiaries, and that's a very difficult kind of situation to get into. It's, it's certainly the data certainly supports that idea that, you know, if, if fewer and fewer people are paying for more and more of it, and I'm not arguing whether that's good or bad, but the data is certainly, if you go look for the data, it's there if you make the adjustments for transfer payments and things mm-hmm. like that. And it looks like we want to do another squeeze of the fruit. Yeah. Uh, what about the concept that at least one side, you know, when you look at both parties, uh, the Republican side is now saying, like, well, you're naive if you think they're just going after the rich people, that ultimately there's only so much income there right. that ultimately, uh, for instance, the corporate tax. You yeah. hear this frequently that corporations don't pay taxes, it's a pass through vehicle. And either shareholders pay it or wages, you know, aren't what they could be or dividends are reduced. Um, That that's where uh, that that it's really that tax. Let's not kid ourselves. The middle people still end up feeling it. Right. It's true. But I think also the Republican Party is not the same as the old fashioned Republican Party. The the Trump Party wasn't really very much concerned about taxes and they weren't very much concerned about spending. There's an old. uh, saying that uh, Phil Graham, who was a conservative senator, uh, said that uh, Bob, Dole, uh, Bob Dole was the tax collector for the welfare state, and the argument there was Republicans always had to come along and clean up the mess that, in terms of higher taxes to deal with the extra spending, but that, that no longer there's no uh, one to, to be the tax collector for the welfare state anymore because the Republicans aren't any, any more eager to do that than the, the Democrats in many cases. Anecdotally, it seems that more and more of my clients, of course, they're retired and they tend to be, you know, because they're retired, they're in their 60s, 70s, or 80s. And maybe it's every generation says this, but I've never seen it accelerated, the pessimism, as far as when they talk about what's this all going to look like for our grandchildren. Yeah. It, that seems to have, ex- the pessimism seems to have accelerated. Uh, maybe there's an offsetting side yeah. where people see it as a brighter future yeah. future well i think it's a there's a big difference i think it used to be that most of our uh efforts in in, in regard to poverty and helping people was directed at uh, people in real distress lower income people but it seems to be a dividing line right now that a, a lot of the programs that we're talking about uh, uh payments for children things of that sort are not just to poor people they're, they're right people are really high up in the uh in the income distribution so if you say everyone below Hundred or two hundred thousand dollars need to have aid. Uh, there's very few people above that to provide the aid to them. So I think that uh, we're we're at a kind of divine line now, going from a response to a, a really severe crisis to institutionalizing some of those same kind of things that may have been needed during the crisis. But I, I, I'm not, not convinced that uh, payments for children to uh, upper middle income people is really quite part of what we need to um, you know, move the country forward. Yeah, you you mentioned that the difference between Sweden, et cetera, and the U.S. One that seems to be like just seems to tax the whole body pretty well, and in the U.S. we tend to put the levy the heaviest taxes. Yeah. And Sweden, I, I should also say that uh, uh, 
the Scandinavian countries are not socialist in the sense that the uh, like government owns all the businesses. There's a lot of potential for uh, entrepreneurial activity, but the government takes a lot of that back in terms of the, the taxes. Any explanation of why, any history there that shows why the U.S. seems to be going down this path of extracting more from fewer in order to pay for the masses versus just basically a societal, everybody's going to pay some pretty heavy freight, but look at all the benefits we get for it. Well, it's probably just the dynamics of, of politics. I mean, it goes back to uh, the um, when the Constitution was approved, uh, Madison talked about uh, in the Federalist Papers about the, the problem with the democracy is you may end up with, uh, you know, 98% of the people taking advantage of 2%. And he wanted to have various kinds of uh, checks and balances and so on to try to reduce that. And maybe that, that is kind of broken down to a certain extent. But again, uh, I'm not arguing that uh, high-income people don't have their ways and means. I mean, right. there, there are uh, all kinds of uh, ways that people get rich and they don't necessarily pay a lot of taxes. So the, the fact is that uh, this is something I say very often in regard to taxes. Uh, who, do you, who do you like to tax and what you like to tax is not necessarily what you can tax. So, so you have all these... Uh, multi-billionaires, you say, well, we should tax them. Well, multi-billionaires have a lot of, uh, of instruments to play, including moving away. So uh, wanting to do it is not the same as being able to do it. And I think that's what we have to have to take into account. And I think even when they look at this most recent tax proposals, there's this big assumption that all these taxes get paid, that there's no yeah. substitution of, right. uh, impacts. And that seems to be a common mistake. Both sides make that same mistake you know it's kind of like the static everything's going to stay the yeah. same where things really don't stay the same people do change their behavior yeah. uh, I was reading articles for instance where uh, private placement life insurance might suddenly for the super wealthy uh, be a place where they hide out because they can essentially have a hedge fund like uh, vehicles inside a privately placed life insurance package and you know all yeah. the earnings can be tax-free and ultimately for estate planning when they wake up right. on the cloud the kids get it tax-free i could certainly see the life insurance industry certainly has had really good carve-outs uh, right. and there doesn't seem to be any attack on that right. in any proposals that i've seen so i could see that becoming more and more popular tool for the very wealthy and also if, if they don't if the stepped-up basis doesn't occur the the other way of doing things is to Invest in uh, in assets that have capital gains. Uh, borrow money against that right. to uh, pay your expenses, and then when you die, you you pay off your debts, and then the rest goes more or less tax free to your your heirs. So there there are all kinds of angles here, and uh, it's like uh, uh, you know trying to uh, you know uh, in sports or something, you come up with one angle, and the other team comes up with another angle to, to counter that. And the same thing is true with the tax authorities and the tax. Uh, uh, taxpayers. Well, meanwhile, even through all this talk of higher taxes, it hasn't really had much impact on the stock market. Uh, the you know the broad U.S. market's up pretty close to twenty percent. Broad global's probably not too far from that. Uh, and you know, I think going into today, I look to see you know kind of where the global stock market and the U.S. stock market, how far off the highs, all-time highs they are, and somewhere around one percent. You know, they're hanging one one and a half percent from their all-time highs. But it still strikes me when I'm looking and we're looking at our client portfolios, we're noticing that most of them, once again, need to be right. rebalanced. Um, it certainly seems like it would be a reasonable point, you know, here to look at your portfolio statement. And if your intent is to be 60% in stocks and 40% bonds, I say that arbitrarily, yeah. and you're suddenly 66 or 67 you probably ought to rebalance. But here's what I'm seeing. People really are reluctant to rebalance because, oh, well, I'm going to rebalance and put more money into bonds that yeah. aren't earning me anything. And that seems to be a real trap right now, and it's yeah. causing people to not – I'm seeing where it's causing a lot of people to choose not to rebalance. Right. Well, that, and that's a – there's a cost involved. And obviously the uh, uh, equity premium is pretty important right now, but the equity premium comes with a cost, and the cost is you, if you don't want to – uh, have equity, you have to pay a cost of lower returns. And so it's really just a, a kind of benefit cost. And maybe people don't want to undertake that. But the same thing is true that uh, people now uh, don't want to annuitize because the annuity annuitization factor is so uh, unfavorable. But the point is that's that's the way the world is. And if you want to have a certain income, you have to pay a, uh, pay a cost. And maybe they don't want to pay the cost, but that's... 
Yeah, it's certainly been exacerbated. You know, there's a lot of academics that are suggesting that these, you know, lifetime annuities, you trade a sum, lump sum of money for a, an income that lasts as long as you live, and they, they, they keep scratching their heads saying, we don't know why people aren't just clamoring for them, but people don't like them yeah. for a variety of reasons. One of the main ones has been if I wake up on a cloud early, I, you know, then the deal's done and my yeah. kids aren't going to inherit anything. Uh, but that's just one of them. The other is historically, well, the pay arcs aren't that great, but yeah. now the pay arcs, historically speaking, are very low because they tend to be tied to a 10-year treasury. But, but it's basically the same choice, though, the, about investing in equity. You're, you're saying if I want to have a higher percentage in equities, I'm willing to take a chance of uh, the, the, the downside. Right. I mean, you're, 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 you're increasing your exposure to things that have less predictability. But, the, but you can't answer the question for people. They have to... Oh, for sure. All you can do is put them side by side and say, okay, when we simulate the world with a uh, with a, a balanced approach portfolio versus guaranteed income or part of it being guaranteed income, I try not to make those decisions for clients. I try to give them the information that they can look at them side by side and decide which flavor they like right. and what they want. And very few people will choose the immediate you know, annuity, uh, and, and let alone now. And at the same time, there's no free lunch just because yeah. you're in this balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds. I mean, it's conceivable that you there are there are, there are there are low probabilities, but there are probabilities there where you will have been better off in that guaranteed income. Yeah, but most of your clients, I don't think, are on the margin between. They're not. Uh, you know, if, if things don't go well, they're not in the poorhouse. They'll, they'll may have to make some reduce their uh, bequests to their to their relatives or cut back a little bit. But they're not not going from a great life to a, a poverty situation. In fact, most of them retire into a higher lifestyle than they were used to. Yeah. And in fact, most of them can't even spend it. Uh, and these aren't super wealthy people. These are just your you know, millionaires next door. But it's that classic, Fred. Uh, you know, it's why do people uh, sacrifice? They wouldn't call it sacrifice, but in a sense, sacrifice for children that are going to have a much higher standard of living than they probably ever had sure. in the aggregate. Uh, but yet I see it and stare at it every day. Um, it's just that mentality. And I keep waiting for this yeah. mentality is, as we move further away from the global depression, I look for that mentality to change, but I have not seen one sign of it yet. Yeah. Um, so. Well, I think you're, to a certain extent, uh, your consumption patterns are ingrained and, uh, you know, what are you going to if you sort of like what you're doing now? What are you going to do? It's I, I say it's just people's DNA at that point, and yeah. you know, and my, the way I kind of jokingly say it is, I've told the kids, you, you quit trying to make a dog a cat. They're not. Yeah. You're not going to do it. Uh, well, Fred, I appreciate you being here today, as always, especially today when I was facing this microphone by <laughs> myself or the potential of that. Um, and I'm not that interesting to talk yeah. for an hour. But I appreciate you being on. And we'll, we'll be back for Paul Rudy's On the Money in a couple of weeks. And we'll look forward to talking to everybody then. Yeah, thanks. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.